Hey there, welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host for the day, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about building meaningful small businesses and earning a living doing something you really care about. Because look, we know that it's tough out there. Building a small business can be lonely and you can spend a lot of time in your head not knowing if you're making the right decisions or even if this whole entrepreneurship thing is going to work out for you. Sometimes you just need a little motivation and encouragement. And maybe you need that mixed with honest advice from people who are right there in the trenches with you. That's exactly why we make The Fizzle Show, because we've been there and we know it's more fun to build a business knowing there are other crazy people out there doing the same thing. We have a fantastic guest on the show today, but before I tell you about her, let me tell you about Podia. Podia is like an amazing Swiss army knife for selling anything online. It's an all-in-one digital storefront where you can sell courses, memberships, and digital downloads all in one place. And the cool thing about Podia is that they eliminate all of the technical headaches. You don't have to install anything. You can host your sales pages there, your files, your checkout process. You can even do your email marketing and your newsletters right from Podia. Fizzle Show listeners get 15% off of Podia for life by signing up for a free trial over at podia.com slash fizzle. That's P-O-D-I-A dot com slash fizzle. Thanks to Podia for sponsoring The Fizzle Show and for supporting independent entrepreneurs like you and me. So today I am joined by Laura Roeder. Laura is founder and CEO of the social media automation tool, Meet Edgar. She has been earning a living independently online for around a decade now, which we'll get into. And she has built both information-based and software-based businesses. Laura, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Corbett. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we were just talking before this. It's been a while since we've caught up, but you and I, I think, have been around in the online entrepreneur sort of space for quite a while now, maybe around the same amount of time. When did you get started? I got started in 2008. 2008. And and you were quite young at the time. Did you, did you go yeah. through a, a standard career or did you jump right into working for yourself? I had a, a tiny, a tiny career. Yeah, I had a job for about a year and a half after I graduated college. Um, and actually, I was referencing when I started like the online stuff. I started working for myself even a bit earlier than that. So yeah, I, I had a real job for like a year and a half. And then I quit that and have worked for myself ever since. That must have been kind of crazy at the time because there weren't podcasts about it. <laughs> there, right. there was very little information about what it took to work for yourself and especially to do it online and especially for someone in their early 20s. What, what went through your mind there? Yeah, you know, I, like a lot of entrepreneurs, was really after the freedom was a big driver for me. And I think the year, I guess it was just 2007. Yeah, I guess I started working for myself full time in 2007 and then did started like learning about information and products and stuff in 2008. And that was actually around the time that uh, four hour work week mm. came out. Yep. So four hour work week was definitely an inspiration for me and was this book that was like, okay, this one 
this one per at least one, right? Maybe there's no more, but at least one guy has done this thing where he's created this online business. And I think he really, uh, you know, had a big role in sort of starting that movement. And then soon after I discovered, I'm guessing that I met you through Chris Gillibo's World Domination Summit. Yep. You know, these communities were gathering and the copy blogger community. So there were things, there were things out there. Um, and I really became a part of those communities. And I am so thankful to, you know, people like the team at copy blogger for <laughs> making me feel less alone and to Chris Gillibo for, for creating these spaces online and offline. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing how quickly things change, but I remember obsessing over everything copy blogger wrote for yes. several years. Yes, they were the best. They were the best. Uh, and, and things have changed for you quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. I, we'll get into the business stuff, but also you've lived in quite a few places over the years and, and uh, you now have children and, and moved to a different country, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm living in the UK now and I have a one-year-old and a four-year-old. Wow. A lot over 10 years. And, yeah. And um, it, it, when, when you got started back when, I'm sure that people in your lives... Uh, friends, family, and so on, wondered what the hell was going on. Yeah, I mean, it's still confusing. I, I remember talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs one time, and we were talking about, what does your family say that you do? And a bunch of people said author. A bunch of people had written, you know, e-books of some, of some sort along the way. So they're like, well, my dad knows that I wrote a book. So he just says author. So yeah, it's still, you know, most people have never heard of a SaaS. Most people still think it's a scam to work online or, or work from home. So it's it's amazing too because it's really a test of like um how well people listen uh <laughs> when you t when you talk or just whether or not they even ask you questions sometimes about what you do i i just um was talking with a friend and she asked something that was clear that we hadn't talked about what i do for a living in like 8 years because of the uh -huh. way that she referenced it you know and so much changes in 8 years and and i guess for you um what i really want to dive into today because I'm making a similar adjustment in my life, which is going from selling information-based products to selling software. Mm -hmm. And I, I mentioned that a little bit in the intro, but um, you now run Meet, Ed Meet Edgar, mm -hmm. which is a social media automation tool. And you've been doing that for, has it been around five years about, now? Yeah, five years. Yeah. So it, tell people about Meet Edgar. Like what, what would we use it for and, and what does it do? Yeah, so Meet Edgar is a tool created for content creators, content marketers. So if you are a podcaster or you blog to support your business and market your business, Meet Edgar takes all that content and promotes it on social media for you. So we're pretty different from other tools in that a lot of other tools, you just kind of write your update and the tool sends it out and that's kind of it. Uh, with Edgar, we store everything in a categorized library to make it really easy to keep sending the updates and keep repurposing the updates if you so choose. Also, we automatically pull status updates from your text for you, automatically pull images for you to enhance the updates. So really make everything a lot more automated. And, and which platforms does this work on? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Okay. All right. Got it. Most of the uh, the important ones that, that people the care about. Ones, yeah. And so this yeah. is this is basically amplifying people's efforts. You you go through so much time and energy to put together posts on social media. Your tool helps to amplify that effort. 
Exactly. And just make it really easy that people can keep discovering the content that you've created. I mean, something like a podcast is a great example. A lot of podcasters love us because it takes so much time to create this one episode. And then a lot of people make the mistake of promoting the episode only when it's new, where almost all podcasts are evergreen, right? You discover it a year later, maybe five years later, it's often still going to be relevant. Yet most people just don't have any sort of system for making sure that they're still exposing new audiences to the content they've created a week, a month, or a year ago. So so that's what Edgar does for you. Nice. Is there some balance do you find um, between, uh, I don't know, like posting too frequently in some ways? Or how do you how do you figure that out? Does your tool help with that? Yeah. So the the true answer is that it's actually really hard to post too frequently. And basically, I found if you have that question, you're not posting frequently enough. Like the people who are in the fizzle audience, the people who are Meet Edgar customers are definitely always on the side of under-promoting their business. Like it, it, you know, don't get me wrong. It is possible to be obnoxious on social media, but basically if you're worried about it, you're so far from, from being obnoxious. And, you know, the main thing I encourage people to do is just look at their own stats and look at their own numbers. Because when you go into Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any of the tools, you get really detailed stats and you see what a tiny percentage of your audience sees anything that you post. Like it's in the low, like single digits of percentages or something. Yes, exactly. And you know, that's not of all the people on the internet, that's the people that have already chosen to follow you. So when you really get real about these numbers, you really see that you need to be a lot more vocal than you have been. And you just have to remember that you read all of your own stuff. And that's why it seems weird, right? Like you see all the tweets you send out, but nobody else right. does. Right. So to you, you're like, I have talked about this to death. To other people, they're like, didn't they record a podcast? Why do they never talk about it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The other, you know, the other thing that I love about um, reposting things is that you'll find that some posts will have just massively outsized results versus others because mm-hmm. of, you know, the the words that you used or the photo or the image or or maybe like, you know, just the the content itself. And so, you know, you'll look at your stats on Twitter or something and you'll see that one post had like 10 or 20 times as much engagement as another one. And so why would you just let that sit there? You may as well use something like that again, right? Exactly. Like if you have a winner, definitely send it again. And a lot of, there's a lot of serendipity involved in social media too, because of the ability to other people, of other people to amplify your message. I had one uh, tweet. It was actually a quote from uh, Amy Hoy's blog. So if you don't already read her blog, Google that. It's great. It was like a little quote and a link to one of her articles. I had posted it before and for whatever reason, when I posted it this time, it actually got over 100,000 views because it happened to get retweeted by someone with a large audience. And there can be a snowball effect there, right? Or sometimes it's retweeted by someone with a small audience, but then someone with a large audience sees that. So a, a lot of social media or someone you know, on Instagram, even where it's really still weird and awkward to share, sometimes someone will share a post, one of your posts and one of their stories. And that's story will get a lot of viewers for whatever reason. So you really can't 
guess who happens to be looking at Instagram or Facebook or whatever when you post it. So again, it's just another reason why you need to post early and often and frequently because you just really don't know what's going to happen when your content gets out in the wild. So you started this around five years ago, you said. What was the impetus for this? You were running uh, an information-based business. I'm sure that you had your own social media needs. Where Mm -hmm. did this come from, this idea? So this was actually directly from um, an information product, which we actually recently um, re-released under under Edgar University. So if you're an Edgar customer, you have access to Edgar University uh, through the program Social Brilliant. So Social Brilliant was an information product that I came out with, you know, I guess about six years ago at this point. And it was the system that I had developed for making sure that I had the right mix of content on social media and also making sure that I was leveraging the status updates that I had already created. So I was putting everything in this giant categorized spreadsheet. I was teaching other people to do the same and people were actually paying for the program and even better, people were actually doing it. People were actually using the system, you know, it was saving them a lot of time on social media, making their social media marketing a lot more effective. So Edgar is literally a tool. I mean, obviously it's evolved a bit more now, but also still does the same thing that that process that people are doing manually, it's software that, that does it for you. Got it. So, so you're saying that Edgar grew out of basically a, a framework, just a, just information yes. about how you should be posting on social media that people were using maybe like with spreadsheets and things like that to keep mm-hmm. track of it. And, uh, and then you decided, what if we automated this? Yeah. And, you know, something that that I learned that I think would be interesting to a a lot of listeners, I know there's a lot of people that create training or information products that are listening. There's actually an axiom in software that if you have if you have a spreadsheet, you have software uh, because a spreadsheet is doing something right, whether it's just organizing information or maybe you have formulas in the spreadsheet that have some sort of output. So if your process or your training or whatever you teach, especially if there's a spreadsheet anywhere in there, that's a little that's a little sign for you, a little beacon for you that maybe you could have software on your hands. Had you built any software before that? No, and I am not a developer. Um, you know, I could code a website in 1995, and then my skills went pretty downhill from there. Um, so I'm I'm definitely not a developer. So my husband Chris actually um, he's a Ruby on Rails developer, and he built the first version of Meet Edgar. And if I hadn't met him, I don't think it would have ever. It would have ever happened because not being in that background myself, it actually didn't occur to me that I had software on my hands. It took him, he knew like what I was doing, what I was teaching to him. It was very obvious that you could make a tool. I had actually assumed that it couldn't be done um, (laughs) because the idea seemed so obvious to me. I'm like, it's so weird that the social media tools don't keep, you know, at least just like a database of the status updates that you've sent out, which most of them still don't, you know, it's just like you send the update and then it's just gone. I'm like, there must be some reason why they don't do this super obvious, I guess it's too hard to program or something, you know, I, I just didn't know. So it took him looking at it being like, no, I could, I could definitely build this. So I'm like, great, build it. So you, you, uh, had the good fortune of, having someone around who knew how to run software or how to write mm-hmm. software at least. Mm-hmm. And, and he had the good fortune of partnering with someone who had all this experience with social media and, and running an online business. 
You mentioned um, earlier before we started recording something about transitioning from what you called an unsellable business to mm. a sellable business. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes along with building software, obviously, that's that's quite different from running an information business, the least of which, you know, not being uh, not understanding technology or needing to find a developer. But what does this mean about like an unsellable versus a sellable business? So my information product business was like most of them. I was the face of the business. I was the trainer. I was the teacher. I was the face. So there was a small team. There were things that other people could do, but the business couldn't grow without me. It could, you know, I could maybe take a break for a month, but the company was not going to grow without me. And it also wasn't a company that could really ever be sold to someone else because it was very much based around me as the, as the teacher and, and my personality. And I really didn't like that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it was, it was frustrating for me that I was personally so tied to the business. And so when I moved into software, it was very deliberate for me that I wanted to create a business that could be sold. And actually, whether or not you do end up selling the business, I don't know whether or not I'll ever end up selling Meet Edgar. It's it's not really my, you know, at the top of my list right now. It's a, it's a great profitable business for me. But having a business that could be sold is just kind of a great framework to look at because if if it can be sold, it means someone else can run it, which means that you don't have to run it, right? Yeah. It means the business can not only, I think it's all about a business that can not only operate without you because a lot of businesses can get to the point where they can like operate without you, but could the business actually experience growth without you? That's that's what we've achieved at Meet Edgar. It's, it's a really interesting question, I think. And this, this has probably been around in business forever. You think about people like Oprah or or Ellen DeGeneres or Tony Robbins or something like that, where they, they run massive businesses, mm-hmm. but they're, ve- they're very much based on that person and, and that mm-hmm. personality. And without them, the business just couldn't exist in the same way. Right. Um, do, do you think this is a, a personal question? Is it just something that um, some people really like being in the spotlight and others don't? Or is it maybe sometimes we go into business without considering that um, putting ourselves, you know, in the, in that figurehead spot might not be the best in the long run. Yeah, you know, I think it's just a choice of your preferences. And it, it's not a bad thing, right? You just say, gave some great examples of businesses that are doing very well. Quite well, you yes. Know? I'm sure Oprah and Tony Robbins are very happy with the, the success of their business. Well, maybe not Tony Robbins. He seems like never, <laughs> never, never satisfied, but <laughs> that's a different topic. But, you know, yeah, having a business centered around a thought leader doesn't mean it has to be a small business. Or there's also business, there's lots of people that are very happy being a one-person freelancer, right? Or, or even mm-hmm. a one-person software company if, if they're a developer. Like, they don't want to have a team. They don't want to work with more people. They know that their business is capped to some degree, and that's fine because they can still have the freedom. They can still earn a great living. So, yeah, I think it's something where there's no right or wrong, but you do want to think about what your long-term goals are and and see if your business is is a match for the direction that you want to go. And what has that felt like to you uh, running a sellable business, as you called Meet Edgar, 
um, versus the the personality or the person based business. Have have there been any ways that um, it has changed your relationship to your business? Absolutely, and that's something that is still evolving. So I just took another big step in that direction recently. We uh, promoted someone to a, a president role in the business, which means that she is running the day-to-day operations. She's the decision maker. So I'm an advisor to her. And then I do you know, things like this podcast that promote the business. Ironically, coming sort of full circle, because now I can be in much more of a thought leader role as someone who's out there on podcasts promoting the business, but that's something really fun for me to do that I really enjoy. And it's not like this is, you know, just a little icing on the cake. It's not like, oh, all of our customers come from Laura talking about the business. And, you know, if she didn't do that, it would, it would fall apart. So the more that I take myself out of the business, the more sellable it becomes. And and that's why I'm talking about this framework of what's sellable. When a business is being valued, how much time the owner puts into it is definitely part of the valuation because Mm -hmm. obviously they don't want it to fall apart when the owner leaves. So something like having a president in place really helps your valuation. So I think it's interesting for every entrepreneur just to learn about valuations, what's considered valuable, what makes a business sell, uh, built to sell by John Warlow is a great book about this topic. Um, but yeah, with every sort of move I make in that direction, it does free up a lot of time in my life without impacting my income. I mean, that's, that's the really cool part. I still get the same salary now because I get to set my own salary because I'm the 100% owner of my business. So I make the same salary now, even though I spend very little hours on the business as I did when I was working the business full time. Was this business uh, bootstrapped or did you raise money to build it? So it was bootstrapped self-funded. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I had money from the information product business, like profits from that business to, to help this one get going. You mentioned, uh, something earlier in, in ideas to talk about today. Uh, you said how to grow a team that builds your business without you while bootstrapping. What does that mean? Well, so I say while bootstrapping because it's, it's, easy in a sense if you've raised money to build a team in the financial sense, right? There's other challenges, but I think a lot of bootstrappers, what's really challenging about building a team is that it just seems and is so expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, something I always tell bootstrappers is you don't write people a check for their yearly salary the first day that they start, you pay them one month at a time. And that's actually really important to you as a bootstrap business, because it's actually very common that you don't have the, you know, 60 K just sitting around in the bank when you want to hire someone at that salary level. But good news is you don't have to have the 60 K. You just have to have a month and a month and then a month. So the way that a bootstrap business grows is very different from a funded business where it's like, okay, we have the 5 million in the bank. We're going to go out and hire 10 people right now. For a bootstrap business, it's often more gradual. It often looks like, you know, hiring part-time people or sometimes it's freelancers turning into full-time. Or if you're hiring full-time, it's just a much slower process because it's all determined by 
the speed of your growth. It's like make more money, spend more money, make more money, spend more money, which I think is just such a great way to grow a business because the business has to prove itself. It's it's very much uh, it, it's an amazing challenge. It's one of the like greatest challenges that I think anybody could undergo because you're talking about a multi year process. You have to have faith. You have to have vision. You have to be doing all this work at the same time, convincing people that working for you is a smart career move. There's all mm-hmm. these crazy things that are going on, and uh, you know once that business is up and running, something like Meet Edgar or uh, something like um, a mutual friend of ours, Nathan Barry, who runs ConvertKit. You look at that business and you go, wow, it's like so successful. It's got all this momentum and it's just doing its own thing. It's amazing. It's sort of like, to me, like a campfire. When you sit around a roaring bonfire, it's just this amazing thing. But sometimes it takes a lot of care and attention at the very beginning stages when you've got the little kindling down there and you're blowing on it and you're trying to get the thing to take off and make sure that it doesn't get extinguished. And and then as there's a little more fire, you can add another little log yeah. and so on, um, as opposed to just having gasoline to dump on a fire, which which is what VC financing often is. Exactly. And you know, the, the cool part is you do build kind of a flywheel and it does definitely get easier. Some things get easier as time goes on. Like you said, convincing people to work for you. Well, obviously once you've been around for five years, you're an established company, they're not the first engineer, they're joining a team of a few other engineers. That's going to be easier than hiring the first one. Mm -hmm. So there's always challenges and there's always new challenges, but yeah, I think the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel for people who are starting out in their journey is that the success does build upon itself. And there, there are some things, you know, just word of mouth is obviously another one. The more customers you have, also the more customers you have to refer other customers. So your word of mouth engine building your business just gets a little bit easier over time. Did you hire people in the beginning who were, um, overseas or part-time or contractors, or did you do anything creative? You know, in the beginning, like you said, uh, you don't have to pay, you know, an entire year's salary, but even a month's salary for Mm. a skilled developer can be pretty crazy for a business that's just getting started. And so, you know, to wait until your revenue levels support that, which, you know, is going to be like, you know, $10,000 a month or more. um, What do you do in the interim? Yeah. So something that, that we did is hire people from different backgrounds. So actually our team is all U.S. Um, and our team now is all full-time W-2. And we've always been more like W-2 heavy, I think, than a lot of businesses of our size. Just I just like doing things that way. Um, but for example, the the person who's currently the president of our business, Sarah Park, she's been with us from the beginning. So she was first hired as a project manager role, and her last job had been at a winter sports resort. Hmm. So she had no background in software. She had no background in SaaS. She really didn't have any background even in technology per se. She did because of her own you know, interests and she had, she had taught herself all that stuff, but you know, she hadn't worked for any kind of company in tech or the person who's currently our head of, of customer service, who's also been with us from the beginning. Um, she was working 
at a crappy call center before she came on board with us as a customer service role because she was at a place in her life where she needed a work from home job and like crappy call center <laughs> was was all she could find even though she's super talented and and super intelligent and you know definitely could have even then done so much more so i think something that's helped us is having a little more leeway in um, being a little more creative in people's backgrounds. And even now, they don't have to have worked in software before. They don't have to have worked in in SaaS before. They just have to have the you know, personality and, and the talents and the skills to be able to thrive in our company. Yeah, that's that's I love that necessity, you know, needing to be creative and hiring people and finding people who are you know, it's it sort of, I don't know if you've seen, there's this movie called The Battered Bastards of Baseball. It's about this um, this team of misfits in the 70s that played baseball here in Portland, Oregon. It's amazing. It's a documentary. And, and actually, it ends up being about Kurt Russell and his dad, which is crazy somehow. Uh, but it's this idea of this misfit team that gets together and then like overcomes all the odds. And obviously, mm-hmm. you, you know, you have the full confidence in your business and um, you have the vision for it. But at the same time, being needing to be a little bit creative in hiring people means that you might take a chance on someone who isn't um, traditionally going to just go in and, and work for Google or something. Mm. Uh, and then here, you know, several years later, you found someone who is capable of being the president of your business, which is amazing for both your business and for her that you right. gave her a shot, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, I think that's a great freedom that we have as indie entrepreneurs is we don't have to follow the rules about, oh, you have to have a college education or you have to have this background. I mean, we don't care about formal education at all. I have no idea who on the team, right. you know, went to university or where or whatever. And I think that's probably sounds like, oh, yeah, duh, of course, to a lot of people listening. But there's still plenty of companies out there. You know, if you want to work at Deloitte, like, I hope you went to the right university. Otherwise, that's that's not happening. And trust me, no one wants to work for Deloitte, <laughs> <laughs> even the people who do. So, uh, all right. I, I would love to also know about a little bit about your, your work life because um, having – kids while you're running your own business is like a whole other feat. Just mm. just getting a business off the ground is one thing. Doing it while bootstrapping is another. And then uh, fast forward, you know, the business isn't that old. It's still just, you know, barely a, a yeah. past toddler stage itself. Um, how many people are on the team, by the way? We have about 15 right now. Okay. So you're running this, this business with 15 people and you have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And so the four-year-old didn't come too far into that business. So how did you manage to juggle those things and make that work? Taking parental leave. Um, and I know that you're also one to take vacation as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I was pregnant with my son when we launched Meet Edgar, so which means, you know, that he was born within the first year of the business. And it was actually an incredible constraint because uh, starting a business 
knowing that you're going to be taking several months off within the first year, you really design that business differently than you would if you're like, sweet, I'll just work 80 hour weeks for the next five years mm-hmm. and I'll get it, you know, I'll get it done that way. Um, so yeah, I took, uh, three months parental leave with both my kids and then I ended up working part-time, um, for the first basically for the first year, you know, of their lives for both of them as well. And I find it really frustrating when, you know, you definitely read a lot of stuff out there that talks about this intense amount of work required in the early years. And you don't, it's not just like a VC thing. I definitely see it um, with, you know, solopreneurs and bootstrapped entrepreneurs too. There's definitely this, this myth out there that like, okay, well maybe later you could take time off, but in the first few years, no way. And I just think it's, it's crazy because stuff, stuff has to get done in a business. Okay. Like let's, let's sort of lay out the math, right? Like stuff needs to, things need to be done for a business to exist and for a business to succeed. Whether you do those things over a day or a week or a month, whether you do them or someone else does them, like these are all variables that can be played with. You know, if you're putting in eight hours of work during a day, you could also put in eight hours of work over a week and get those things done at a different pace, right? Mm -hmm. But the Mm -hmm. things would still be done. Or again, the big one, someone else does the things, they still get done. So I'm not denying that work needs to be done for a business to succeed, but I just really think we need to question this idea that the founder or the owner has to be the one to do the work or that the founder or the owner has to do the work at this certain pace that everyone has decided, okay, it has to be eight hours a day or more, five days a week or more. That is not the only pace in which one can run a business. Is this something, do you feel like you learned this, uh, you were forced to learn this because you were having a child while starting a new business or was this something you had already sort of grasped beforehand? It's something that I grasped beforehand. I don't know if I'm just like lazy, but I have never been an all hours type of worker. Like from my very, when I very first worked for myself, I wouldn't work on the weekend. I wouldn't work in the evening. I've always enjoyed my work, but I've always had other stuff going on in my life as well. So I think it's just sort of my temperament. I also love, I am not scared to delegate. When people don't want to delegate things, I'm like, why? But then you don't have to do it. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Other people do it for you. Um, and, you know, I'm oversimplifying a little bit. I understand the, the concerns and the scariness that, that can come up there. But, yeah, I, I just, I've always had this perspective of, like, it's such an incredible gift to be able to create my own job and create my own work, why in the world would I do it in a way that I don't want to do? Why, if I'm creating my own job, why aren't I doing the things that I want to do? Why aren't I working the hours that I want to work? Isn't, wasn't that kind of the point? Yeah. I think that some people, um, I, I don't know, we just all get bathed in this vision of entrepreneurship that involves, sleeping under your desk and pulling 80 hour weeks and so on. Um, and you know, to some degree you hear about that. And, um, I think that we, as a, as a society, we really like to fetishize the, um, 20 something 
entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those people have the time in their lives to do that. And they're not worried about sacrificing their health and their relationships Mm -hmm. and their family and so on. And so because it's so amazing to hear about the latest whiz kid who created a billion dollar business, uh, we hear about those origin stories. And it's kind of boring to hear about the latest, you know, um, mom or middle-aged person who like, you know, created a business um, because those stories are happening all the time. I read um, recently that actually the average age of the successful VC-backed companies um, at starting was in their 40s and not like in the 20s like you think of just because of all these exciting stories that you hear. Mm. Well, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like as as an adult who's lived a little bit, like who has a better shot at making it successful? Someone who's 20 and has never done it before or someone who's 45 and it's like their fifth company. Yeah. You know, like clearly, you know, we all know that there is great, great value and experience and, and having done it a few times before. And yeah, I really find it frustrating that those stories are so glamorized because for so many people, you know, if you can work for yourself and make like $75,000 a year, that's awesome. You know, have freedom over your schedule, have time to hang out with your family, have enough money to support your family. Like there are so many people trying to get there to that mark. And that is so possible. And there's so many different types of people in so many different fields that do it, do not do it working crazy hours. But like you said, those stories just aren't as exciting. It's like, yep, I built up a customer base over a few years and now I've got a good customer base and I'm, you know, pretty happy with where I'm at and I'm sticking here. It's just like, okay, there they are. But that's, I mean, really that's, that's the dream of, of so many people. Yeah, I mean, we all have we all have different dreams, and and it's funny um, thinking about like when you started out, what your level of ambition was, and whether or not you know you you were swinging for the fences, or if you just really wanted to be able to not work for somebody else. And and I think that's the dream for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. When when you got started, did you have like really grand ambitions, or or did you just want to you know be able to support yourself and take a vacation? I mean, I've always been interested in running a a business larger than just myself, maybe because, like I said, I have enjoyed delegating and, and having a team around me. I haven't been the type of person who's like, I just want to be a, a freelancer and do my craft. Also, because I don't like I don't consider myself a creative person, actually. Like I, I don't consider myself like creator. Oh, sorry. Creator is a big word right now. It's one we use a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, Edgar, you know, I think Nathan Barry kind of came up with that and we copied him calling their customers creators. Like, I don't consider myself an artist, a creator, a creative. I'm someone who likes the business side and the operational side. So when I started working with myself, I was actually a graphic designer, but a lot of graphic designers are like, oh, I hate running the business. I just want to be able to design. I'm like, oh, designing's so boring. I just, I just want to run the business. And so I think because my interests are on that side, it naturally lends to me being interested in like, okay, what does it look like to grow our team, to grow our revenues, to grow our customer base? So yeah, I mean, I think my ambitions are bigger in that sense, but also 
like many people in this community, like I'm not trying to have a $40 billion business. I'm not trying to have a hundred million dollar exit. You know, I'm the, the control of the business and the freedom is definitely, I, I would never sacrifice that for money. And it's interesting that you don't, I mean, you don't really have to sacrifice money either because, mm. you know, a lot of um, people in this world that we, this crazy world that has only existed for the past 10 years or so, uh, you know, and and uh, like you said, maybe maybe Tim Ferriss is the godfather of all of this, uh, thinking back to the four-hour work week, which was in 2008, not that long ago. But this crazy world that's existed for maybe 10 years or so. A lot of people we know who started, you know, back then and, and even along the way have amazing businesses, amazing levels of freedom and, mm-hmm. you know, the ability to travel and do whatever you want. And um, all of that, you don't really have to sacrifice money. In fact, a lot of these people make a heck of a lot more than they would have staying in a career. Absolutely. And also, interestingly, a lot of bootstrap business owners make a lot more than a lot of uh, people in the VC world because you get you get to take it home yeah. when you're a bootstrapper. You know, a lot of people that have raised a lot of money for their business, they don't actually get such a high salary. They don't get to keep any of the profits if there are any. And most startups do not have a successful exit, which is also something else that people are misled about. People have this impression that startups do well. Even startups who have an acquisition, most of those acquisitions sometimes are, you know, aqua hire, sometimes are for no money. Sometimes the investors get some back, but there's none left over for the owner. Um, being a, a bootstrapper, even if you're running like a million dollar business instead of a $50 million business, you're often actually taking home more and, and having more freedom. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the, one of the decisions I think people, when they're thinking about raising money, they're just thinking about the dollars and whether or not they're going to be able to convince investors, you know, to give them money to get started, but they really don't understand how that dynamic changes and how, as soon as you take money, you're no longer fully in control of your business, which is a crazy situation to be the person who started this thing, who mm. worked so hard to get it off the ground. And now suddenly, basically it feels like you have, um, a bunch of bosses. And that's not why most of us get into this business in the first place. So, um, Laura, I would love to wrap up with uh, a little bit more discussion about social media because, you know, obviously social media has been around um, for a while now. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Twitter became popular starting around eight or 10, 12 years ago, that sort of thing. And um, I think they have sort of uh, all had waves of interest from the public uh, and fascination, you know, and um, we've seen different relationships that people have with social media and different levels of effectiveness and so on. But um, your tool is helping businesses get more from social media. And I guess what I would like to know is um, where should social media be playing a part for the average fizzle show listener, for someone who's listening to this, mm-hmm. thinking to themselves, there's a million things that I could be doing in my business. I have to be building my product. I have to be finding customers and and um, and building my team and so on. Where does social media fit in there? And give us the vision for how useful it can be and, and how much of our space it should occupy. Social media is an incredible marketing channel. So the way I always think about it is I'm sure there's a lot of people 
listening who watch Shark Tank sometimes. So every so often you have these these people that come in a Shark Tank and the sharks are like, okay, I don't know about the product. Have you actually sold any? And then they're like, oh, yeah, actually, we, you know, we did four million in sales in the past year. And the sharks are like, what? How did that happen? And the answer is the same 100% of the time. It's social media, right? We were popular on Instagram. We were popular on Facebook. It's spread word of mouth. I mean, there's been all this press about Kylie Jenner's lip kits, right? Like Kylie Jenner, youngest billionaire ever via these lip kits. They're not sold in stores. They're sold online and they're marketed through mostly organic social media. And we tend to sort of take that for granted, I think. Um, but this this trend of social media making you pay for stuff, which like everybody complains about, right? We all remember when we had way more visibility with Facebook pages. Now people are like, ah, oh, Facebook makes you run ad makes you run ads for anyone to see it. Of course they do, and it will continue to move in that direction. And the fact that we still get like any free visibility on social, which we still do, is just this amazing marketing opportunity. You know, you don't, you don't get that for free in email. I can't just email a list of a hundred thousand people and do that for free, but I can have a hundred thousand Instagram followers and I don't have to pay a penny for that access or the platform or the, you know, live video marketing tools that they give me. So that's just always how I think of it at the end of the day is like we have this amazing, these amazing channels for connecting with people and distributing our content and getting our message out there and getting it shared. Like that is just the, the basic understanding of how you should be viewing social media marketing for your business. If um, somebody wants to check out Meet Edgar, um, where should they go? meetedgar.com and we have a coupon code for podcast listeners if you just enter podcast in all caps uh, you'll get a month free of meet edgar so that you can try out edgar without spending any money see if it's right for you amazing thank you so much laura thank you uh for sharing some of your backstory and just really inside the mind of what i love about your story is uh that you're so laid back about business you carve out time for yourself, and yet you have this massive ambition and you've reached these levels of success that most people could only dream about. And you're just amazing to talk to. So thank you so much for being thank on you. The Fizzle Show. Thank you. Thanks again to Laura Roeder for being our guest today. And thanks to you for listening. If you liked today's episode, would you mind either leaving a review or telling someone about the show? We depend on you to help get the word out and a review or referral is the best way to help out the show. As always, you can find the full show notes over at fizzleshow.co. That's F-I-Z-Z-L-E-S-H-O-W dot C-O. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. 